Happy Wednesday afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for September 23rd, 2020. I am here with Twitter darling, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. I loves me the Twitters. All right. Well, I love the Twitters too. And thanks to the Twitters, we have a lot of great news that we want to cover and we've got a lot that we want to talk about. So we're going to jump into our first segment here. Um, lots of things to talk about. Maybe some of it's newsworthy, maybe some of it's not. So Stephen, let's get started with news or not. Nah. All right. Excellent. So fraud prevention startup NS8 is in deep trouble with the US government. The startup has been under investigation from the SAC accused of fraud. Additionally, this week, the CEO of the company, Adam Rogas, was arrested and charged by the FBI with fraud as well. The company was founded in 2016, has received about $120 million of funding, with a reported $17 million going directly to that self-same CEO. They laid off about 200 employees early this year after disclosing that they were under investigation. So uh, fraud startup accused of fraud. Should the CEO uh, have known not to commit fraud, Tom? Well, I don't think this is news because fraudsters are always going to fraud. But if you are running a fraud prevention company, maybe you should not commit the crime you are investigating. Indeed, I, point, that seems know. like a good way to be. All right. Well, Stephen, uh, making the commute from Boise, Idaho to Boston, uh, Massachusetts to Stockholm, Sweden, Cradle Point will be acquired by Ericsson. Uh, the latest in a long line of wireless acquisitions, including Marconi, Bell Air, and Redback Networks. Cradle Point specializes in mobile and edge network access points. And we've had a lot of great presentations from them over the years at Mobility Field Day. Now, is this news that they're being acquired by a large mobile provider, Stephen? Um, I'm afraid it is. Um, and I say I'm afraid because um, some of these large tech companies have less than a stellar history in terms of acquisitions. And um, honestly, it couldn't have happened to nicer people. The Cradle Point products are great. The people are great. We've always loved working with them. And they always have a special part in my heart because Cradle Point powered the Tech Field Day mobile, uh, yes, the infamous white limo from literally the first ever event. Um, I'll, still I'll never forget the joy on everyone's face when they realized they could open up their laptop while crawling along the 101 trying to get to the next presentation. Um, and I use their products. Um, I've really enjoyed them. Um, please, Erickson, please let Cradle Point be Cradle Point. Um, how about this? I'm an optimist. Let's have this not be news. Let's have this just be the next step in a glorious future. I like that. All right. Well, we'll hope. Um, so, uh, speaking of acquisitions, uh, Fungible is one of the many startups we've been hearing a lot about uh, with Tech Field Day and Gestalt IT and just all over the place. They make what's called a data processing unit or DPU chip that could be useful in cloud infrastructure. Uh, we've also heard a lot about Cloudistics, which made a software uh, cloud platform OS for disaggregated servers. Now, it makes a lot of sense to bring those two together, um, and that's exactly what's happening. Fungible is buying Cloudistics. But I'm hearing uh, some clouds on this. So, Tom, what's the long-term impact of this move? So the long-term impact has everything to do with this idea of disaggregation. And all you have to do is go back and look at what NVIDIA is doing. And Stephen, you did a great video on the, the NVIDIA acquisition of ARM. NVIDIA has been trying to disaggregate CPUs in general. And 
Data processing units, DPUs, are essentially network and storage accelerator cards. They're trying to get the IO off the box as fast as possible. So right now, Fungible's making a huge bet that the big cloud providers are gonna wanna be buying these DPUs from them using Cloudistic software to accelerate workloads out of you know bare metal boxes. And what that means is, is that these complicated CPUs that companies like Intel have been trying to sell us for a whole lot of years, aren't gonna be nearly as important as having the fastest, meanest ARM processor running the general compute in a server and then having a data processing unit or a TensorFlow unit or a GPU accelerating individual processes. So the technology is cool. Does it make sense to have them combine with Cloudistics? And do we worry if uh, this was more of a IP acquisition or a talent acquisition? I think this is going to end up being a talent acquisition, and I think it's going to end up being defensive as much as keeping that crew out of somebody else's hands. But time will tell. I'm hoping that this doesn't become news. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we got one more storage story for news or not, Stephen. Um, most people, when you say the term Western Digital, think disk drives, right? But that's not the case anymore because Western Digital is actually very active in the flash storage market. Uh, they do have a new CEO, David Geckler, who came from Cisco back in March. And, uh, you know, there's some things going on around the disk and the storage space for Western Digital. Now, Stephen, you're our resident storage expert. Um, how should we be looking at this news that they're reorganizing all of their disk business? Well, you know, on the on the one, well, I guess on face value, somebody could say, oh, my God, they're getting ready to do a spinoff or something like that. Um, and that may be true. Um, you know, if you if you analyze the company a little bit, you'll see that the the whole company is actually undervalued relative to the flash business alone. Essentially, um, you know, the company had traditionally been organized more according to uh, product categories. So they had sort of the data center and the client business and so on. And, and, and within those businesses, they had, um, you know, disk and flash and so on, because of course, you know, you know, people use disks, companies use disks, you know, hyperscalers use them. Um, it's very interesting to try to figure out and tease this out. So, yeah. So on the one hand, you could look at it and say, they're trying to unlock shareholder value by preparing for some kind of a spinoff. Um, and if they did that, um, Western Digital would almost certainly be worth much, much more in the stock market. Because like I said, I mean, essentially you've got two roughly equal halves of the company, the flash business and the disk business. And the uh, flash business alone is worth more than the combined in terms of if you look at comparables on Wall Street. So theoretically, the company could spin off one side or the other and just magically create a huge pile of money. And we're talking many billions of dollars here. So... Um, I, I guess if you look at it from that perspective, this is a positive kind of stock market move. But it also kind of makes some sense technically because, of course, Flash and Disk are just very, very different products, you know, very different categories. And so, you know, you could also look at it and say, you know what, maybe they're just trying to rationalize IP and rationalize development costs and kind of make sure that, the, that it makes sense going forward. Um, I'm not sure which one it's going to be. Um, I am interested to see that this is a new CEO with a new management team. Um, he's got a new uh, head of the uh, disk drive business, I believe, and I think they're looking for a new head of the flash business or vice versa. But anyway, the point is, um, you know, they're shaking things up and they're honestly looking pretty good. I'd say this is news. I think it's industry news. I think it's news for Western Digital. And I don't think it's bad news. 
Yeah. I, for one, hope that they spin out the Flash business because if they spin off the spinning disc business, I'm not going to be able to avoid making pun after pun when I write headlines for that one. So Yes, look for those headlines on the, on the rundown in the future. Exactly. All right. Well, that'll just about do it for News or Not. Thank you, Stephen, for running some of this stuff down. But we're going to get into some of these stories that have a little bit more discussion behind them. Um, and the first one is actually a story we covered just a little bit last week because it was literally breaking news as we went on the air. Um, but Pure Storage is buying Portworks, the, uh, the Kubernetes uh, darling. Uh, is now going to be part of Pure Storage. Now, we talked a little bit with Max about it last week, but now that we've had a little bit of time to digest this, and of course we have Twitter darling and storage expert Stephen Foskett on the call, um, you know, Pure Storage is leading development of flash storage in the data center. I mean, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Pure Storage array somewhere. But what does it mean that Pure Storage is buying a container company? Well, I think that this is actually, um, and, and just, uh, you know, disclaimer, um, you know, I've been involved, uh, you know, connected with Pure Storage from a coverage perspective since the very, very beginning. I actually talked to the company before they, you know, came out of stealth. Um, you know, they've come to Tech Field Day again and again and again to present. Um, same thing with Portworx. In fact, the founders of Portworx actually presented uh, their previous company, Ocarina, at Tech Field Day numero uno back in 2009. So. Um, I've, I've known these people for a very long time and I have a good relationship with them. But what that means is that they were able to speak with me, um, you know, pretty candidly. And I've always been pretty candid right back to them about, you know, their strategy. Um, Portworks, Portworks was doing excellent, excellent work. Uh, they came up with basically enterprise storage for Kubernetes. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me in the cloud space is that so many companies develop for developers and um, basically developers don't buy stuff. Uh, Portworks was developing for uh, enterprises. They developed a really, really nice solution. They were actually storage people who knew something about the cloud. And so they were able to put together a very, very compelling product. And I was very impressed by it. But the problem is, you know, you're a small startup. Um, they were able to attract a lot of interest and a lot of attention. And in fact, they kind of became the Kleenex of enterprise storage for Kubernetes. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, you've got Pure Storage, who's just been marvelously successful at going after the heart of the market. I've always been sort of uh, bullish on Pure more for the fact that they know what people buy than anything else. You know, I mean, they're, it's not that, the, I mean, the products are bad or anything. It's just that, you know, this is a company that has developed, you know, the Toyota Camry of storage. Um, and they hate it when I say that, but that's actually a great thing, right? I mean, they've got this, this product that is targeted at the middle of the market. It's developed, you know, a massive, massive sales. The company now has a pickup truck of storage too, the Flashblade. And between those products, um, you know, you've got a company that is able to make a ton of money selling across the board. And, and so they've been tremendously successful. Combining these things, I think, is fantastic, mainly because, frankly, it's really hard for a conventional data center to make the jump or data center provider to make the jump into the enterprise, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, into the cloud, into this next generation. Uh, you know, NetApp has been working really hard on it. Um, I know that Dell EMC and HPE and others have been working on it as well, pure as well. Um, but, you know, it's hard to be taken credibly and it's hard to, uh, to work on that stuff with focus unless it's sort of the focus of your company. By bringing in Portworks, Pure just, uh, they just grab the ripest peach off the tree. And I think this is a tremendously positive move for Pure. I think it's a tremendously positive move for Portworks. 
And I think um, basically we're seeing the emergence of the next great storage company uh, that's going to last into the next generation. So um, that's all I got to say. Yeah, I think with VMworld coming up uh, just next week, we're going to be hearing a lot more about people running containers and Kubernetes on uh, enterprise workloads and things like that. So a lot of CEOs are about to start scrambling to find container-aware enterprise-class storage. And I have a funny feeling they're going to be getting some orange gift cards and orange things in the mail saying, hey, uh, come check us out. We, we might actually be uh, something you're looking for right now. Right on. So, uh, Tom, I know both of you and me, uh, you know, we're running Apple's iOS 14 on our uh, iDevices. You know, I've got the iPhone, the iPad running it. I even have this little guy, an, an iPhone SE running iOS 14. Um, but the latest uh, software update uh, has a new feature that's been lauded by privacy advocates because it can randomize the MAC address of the wireless card that's used to probe for networks. And in short, this prevents networks from being able to track people without connecting to them, you know, without them connecting, because it uses a random ID every time it looks for a network. Now, hardware companies have warned that this feature uh, could break some of their features. And Cisco disclosed that their identity services engine, also known as ISE, is affected. This disclosure said that the features rely on MAC address tracking and pinning would be affected. Um, also, systems leveraging mobile device management for BYOD deployments could see issues with missing devices as well. Is Apple trying to save us from sneaky tracking that we see all around us, or are they really going out to break up IT systems? So it's funny because this exact same thing was what we were told was going to happen when the betas were coming out. And it was companies like Cisco and enterprise wireless companies and, well, let's be fair, Facebook screaming about how MAC address randomization was going to destroy everything that they've spent years building. And I believe that Tim Cook was sitting behind his desk over in the Apple spaceship going, excellent because that's exactly what he meant to do with this. So if you're not familiar with the, uh, the um, well, before it became known as contact tracing, it was uh, the world of um, digital experience. And essentially I've seen a lot of demos from a bunch of different companies that are trying to get you to opt in to doing certain things. So if you've ever been um, encouraged to download an app for a store, if you've ever been encouraged to connect to their internal Wi-Fi, there's a reason for that. And it has little to do with them wanting to deliver you coupons. And it has a lot to do with them wanting to find out exactly where you are in a store. And one of the things that they've been able to do with these big platforms is they can pretty much spot you down to less than a meter resolution. They know which section you're standing in front of, how long you've been there, and they can start doing things like, oh, hey, did you really want to buy that MacBook? Well, here's $50 off on it. You get that text message while you're in the store. And it's creepy when it happens. But you have to opt into that. And so the people who don't are smart and are like, no, 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 I don't need to join the Wi-Fi. They were like, well, I'm, I'm going to avoid this. But you, your phone is always probing for all the SSIDs that you've ever joined in your entire life. It's constantly screaming, hey, are you H honors? Hey, are you home network? And we were able to track people that way. Well, Apple said, mm -mm, not going to deal with that anymore. And so what they did is they locked it out by randomizing the probe address that you use when you try to connect to a network. When you do connect, it uses your actual MAC address because that's essentially an opt-in. And Cisco is basically saying, well, now it's broken captive portal. It's uh, broken device tracking. It's broken all of these things. And Apple is evil because they broke a thing that we were using to track you. And I am firmly in the camp of, yeah, break it. I don't care. Fix it. Make it better. Do something different. Quit trying to follow me around the store. 
So bravo to Tim Cook for sticking to his guns. Now, I know they pulled a lot of the really crazy hairy edge features out of this because Facebook was threatening to do naughty, evil things because Facebook going to Facebook. But I expect to see this feature coming back even stronger in iOS 15. And I think Tim Cook is just going to be like, y'all got to deal with this. Well, honestly, it was only a matter of time. Um, you know, it reminds me of some of the other Apple privacy features where all the companies are crying foul, you know, oh, you're going to you're you're breaking our ability to track people as they travel across the Internet. You're breaking our ability to target them with ads. I'm sorry, but that was a workaround. That was an evil workaround. And now you're going to cry that, uh, you know, that somebody's closing the door that uh, that they didn't realize they had left open. Um, uh -uh. I'm sorry. You don't get to say that, Tim Cook. Yeah. And if you're a company that thinks that you need a workaround to get around this, I will uh, I'll send it to you on a floppy disk. All right. Um, we do have a little bit of news on a big IPO. Um, hopefully you all out there have heard of Snowflake, um, mostly because they've been generating a whole bunch of buzz since they've been founded. Um, it, a lot of it's been from the management team because they came uh, right out of service now. Um, but their IPO absolutely floored everybody. Uh, it was the largest software IPO in history. People watched the company go from $33 billion evaluation when the IPO opened to 80 eight billion in under an hour. Now, there was a lot of money left on the table. If you know anything about IPOs, when you're when you go up that much, somebody made a fortune and it wasn't you. Um, but what happened? And and Stephen, you you do this a little bit more than I do. So more importantly, is Snowflake going to change the way we look at tech IPOs? Or did this just happen to be lightning in a bottle at just the right time? Well, I think that there's a combination of things there. And actually something that I'd like to get at, get to if we have enough time here on the rundown mm -hmm. is there's some crazy crap going on on Wall Street right now. But um, let's set that stuff aside and try to analyze this thing on the face of it. So number one, this is the most this is the richest software IPO in history. Full stop. Um, you know, you can say that we're in some kind of a bubble or something, but frankly, you know, we're not seeing as many IPOs and, uh, you know, we are seeing some pretty big ones, uh, but this is really, really, really big. Now, some people are saying, oh, Snowflake left money on the table. They could have priced it higher instead of, you know, they could have taken that extra billions and, and sold the stock for it. But, you know, I don't think so um, because I think that what they did was they came to it, they looked at a fair price for the thing, they priced it at, at a fair price that met the sniff test of the Wall Street types, and they went. And, it, you know, I, I think that it's um, it's a funny kind of schadenfreude to look at a massively successful IPO and say, oh, boy, they screwed that up, right? Um, they didn't. Uh, I think that the company was actually priced reasonably well. Um, if there was a great chart uh, posted on Twitter, um, I, I don't remember who posted it, but anyway, it was basically the um, the uh, re revenue generated by various software companies at various quarters, and um, and Snowflake is so far out on top of that. Um, this is a company that has a good product, is selling it a lot into a good market, and making a ton of money. Uh, no, they're not profitable. Oh, you know, yeah, $33 billion was a big price to price the company at. But, you know, they're doing a good job. They've got a good product and it's in a good market. Um, you know, and I don't think we can yell at them and, and blame them for the fact that their IPO just went absolutely freaking crazy. 
I do recommend, um, I just uh, tweeted a Wikibon uh, article about this. They did a really nice job of assessing sort of the financial side of things here. Um, but overall, I would say that this is a, you know, this is, this is good. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, with a minor exception that obviously, you know, we still are tolerant, perhaps excessively tolerant of companies that aren't making money uh, having tr tremendously huge valuations. Um, you know, I would kind of like to see companies profitable as well, but, you know, I am old fashioned. Um, you know, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, 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 I'm a caveman. I would like companies to make money instead of just uh, running up debt. But, you know, who, who, who do I know anymore? So anyway, anyway I, I would say that, that this is a, a reasonable um, thing. I think that the 88 billion says more about Wall Street than it does about Snowflake. Well, that's actually an interesting point because we've got a few minutes here left, Stephen, and you you made, you made some notes here. So let's talk about that whole Wall Street thing because we've talked a lot about SoftBank on the rundown, uh, whether it's about NVIDIA or WeWork or Uber. Um, they There's been a lot going on back and forth there, but they're not the only ones that are doing some crazy stuff. Um, a lot of the top tech stocks on Wall Street are kind of blowing up right now. Uh, the options market has gone absolutely insane. Daily volume of options that are passing for stocks, the, the de vo daily volume of options has passed the daily volume for stocks for the first time ever. And that says a lot about what's being traded right now. Uh, Traders game has driven the rise of huge tech stocks, names you've probably heard of, Apple, Tesla, Zoom, Amazon, uh, massive valuations in the last few months. This technique is increasing market volatility and really, I mean, by any honest measure of it, has created a bubble that we keep popping over and over again, and it just keeps blowing right back up. What does this mean for future IPOs for companies like Snowflake? Because everybody wants to be that IPO and nobody wants to be the WeWork IPO. And what happens when other companies get caught up in it? Because one of the things that we can say uh, based on the whole NVIDIA, we, um, sorry, NVIDIA SoftBank thing is that NVIDIA is using a big chunk of their stock valuation to buy that company from SoftBank and SoftBank wants the cash. So how's this all going to play out from a Wall Street perspective? Yeah. So there was a really, really interesting article. Um, now, if you're not reading the the, the margins blog uh, by Ranjan Roy and Kandurik, you really should. Um, it's just fantastic. Um, every single article is worth reading. Um, but one of the things that they uh, they wrote about recently was basically how SoftBank ate Wall Street. And here's the thing, here's what's going on, if, if I can maybe translate for the layman and, and even for our tech audience. Um, something weird is happening here. <laughs> basically, instead of, I mean, like I said, I, I would love it if companies were valued based on their profits and then people like bought a share in order to get a, a share of the company. I mean, all that old fashioned stuff. But then we kind of got to the point where we're like, oh, well, companies are valued based on their expectations. Like, you know, we expect that, you know, pets.com is going to be worth like 100 times what it is now. So I'm going to bid the stock up to 100 times. But even then, that was basically primary, like acquisitions of sales and things like that. But there's always been this other thing, these options. Basically, I will pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, kind of in the stock market, essentially saying, I'm going to bet that this is going to go up. And... Um, but essentially what happened was some people noticed that, um, you know, sort of Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Well, guess what? Um, if you buy an option on a stock that it's going to go up, then the bank has to buy some of the stock to cover that option. And then the bank buying that stock makes the stock go up. Well, what if you buy a 
huge number of options? What if you buy like, like billions of dollars of options in companies? Well, what happens is you're basically forcing all these poor investment banks to go out there and buy stock to cover that. Well, that's driving the price up. And then you buy more and that drives the price up and then you drive more and that drives the price up. Essentially, we're playing a game. And I, I don't mean we, because I'm not doing it, but people are playing a game where they're manipulating the price of the stock simply by buying options on the stock. This is totally terrifying because it's coming home to roost. If you've wondered what happened to Apple and Tesla over the last few weeks, one of the things that happened is freaking nothing. One of the things that happened is that these artificial bubbles were artificial anyway because it was literally SoftBank and other people like them using billions of dollars to drive up the prices in order to make a bunch of money on these you know, options. Um, I am kind of terrified of this because it could hit any of these companies. And I suspect that it's going to hit IPOs. I suspect, I, I don't know if you can buy an option on an IPO within like 10 minutes, but you can buy it pretty quickly. Um, I suspect that it's going to hit successful companies that we've talked about, like Cisco and Pure Storage that, you know, make stuff and sell it for a profit. And it's pretty terrifying to think of that because what you could end up with is we can end up with situations where a company like, you know, that, that's a good company like Apple or Tesla or Amazon has their stock bid up just to tremendous levels that are unsupportable and then they collapse and then that becomes bad news and it kind of rains down on the company. Can you imagine if somebody did this to Pure Storage? Can you imagine if somebody did this to NetApp? Um, it would be very difficult for them to handle a situation like that. And there's this tool out there that's happening. It's terrifying. Read the article go look and say, oh my God, are we in another Wolf of Wall Street moment here? Yeah, and we'll make sure that that article is linked in the show notes so you can take a look at it because it is, it's something that you need to think about even if you're not a finance person and it kind of makes scary sense. So uh, make sure you put your tinfoil hat on before you read it. All right, uh, we are out of time for this week. Uh, we had a lot of great stories. We uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you want to catch this on your morning run or your commute down the stairs, you can check us out on our podcast feed. Uh, if you do consume us through iTunes, do us a favor and leave us a like and a review so that everybody knows how snarky we are. And that's something that appeals to them because we always love uh, new viewers on the news. Uh, if you're watching this live on our Gestalt IT YouTube channel, which is uh, youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video, thanks for checking us out. Um, you might want to head over to Facebook and leave us a like on our page at facebook.com slash Gestalt IT. Uh, for those of you watching on a Facebook after the fact, remember you can catch us live every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time uh, on our YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, if you have any stories or anything that you want to have uh, see covered on the rundown, don't forget to tweet at Networking Nerd or at S Foskett. We can absolutely make sure that your uh, story makes it into the news. And uh, other than that, you know, we hope that the week ahead is uh, nice and quiet and nobody breaks anything. But next week, you're going to want to tune in because uh, Tech Field Day will be doing our networking field day event number 23. Uh, we have a huge lineup of companies. If you head over to the Tech Field Day website, you can see who's going to be there. That, of course, means that I'm going to be busy running that event. So Mr. Foskett will have a guest host. So make sure you uh, line him up some great news. Make sure it's a lot of networking stories because I don't want him to have to cover storage at all next week.
Thanks, Tom. I, uh, um, well, honestly, networking doesn't matter. It's only the storage that matters. So I think that we don't have to worry about that. But we'll try to make do without you. It's going to be, it's going to not feel like the rundown without the networking nerd. I'm sorry to say, but hopefully we'll be able to make it through. So I'll see you next week at, uh, or next Wednesday at the same bat time and same bat channel. And then you can catch Tom over at Networking Fielding. All right. Well, uh, thanks to everyone for watching along. And remember, in the words of our inimitable founder and uh, departed from the show friend, Rich Straffolino, have a super, super sparkly day.